Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we will be discussing how we can find healing, transformation, and spiritual growth through compassionate caregiving. I'm joined today by Dr. John Bauer. John's lifelong commitment to caregiving began on the front lines of the AIDS crisis in New Orleans in the early 1990s. Over the past 25 years, he has provided emotional, spiritual, and bereavement support to countless dying persons and their family members. John is an author and spiritual counselor with expertise in healing grief and trauma. He has published research studies and essays on stress and healthy coping, organizational change, transformational learning, caregiver support, and hospice care. Today, we will be discussing his latest book, Contemplative Caregiving, Finding Healing, Compassion, and Spiritual Growth Through End-of-Life Care. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, John Bauer. I'm really delighted to be able to talk with you today and discuss your book, Contemplative Caregiving. And I'm so happy to be here, Laurel. Thank you. And thank uh, the Yoga Hour and the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment for having me here today. So before we dive into our dialogue about finding healing and spiritual growth through caregiving, let's begin with a moment of contemplation, moment of present moment awareness, a yoga moment. Oh. So let's begin right where we are. Whatever we're doing, just turning our attention to our bodies in space. Just feeling our body, whether we're sitting or standing, walking or driving. Just feeling our body. And turning our attention to the surfaces that support our weight and the part of our bodies that are in contact with those surfaces. Just feeling that. Feeling our feet feeling the part of our weight that's supported in the chair if we're sitting. And then turning our attention to the breath, wonderful tool that's always with us, and just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, noticing the coolness of the air as it passes through our nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling the warmth as the air has been heated as it passes through our lungs. And just staying with our breath, just being right here, right now. Here's something to contemplate. A teaching from the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, from her online course, Dharma 365, Live Your Higher Purpose. The purpose of the practice of karma yoga, or selfless service, 
is the same as all the other yogas to free us from the tyranny of the ego-directed actions of the false self. The various approaches of the yoga system give us options for how we go about loosening the hold of the ego. With karma yoga, it is our ability to act with conscious reverence for life, to take our place in the great sacred family that is one. With karma yoga, or selfless service, it is our ability to act with conscious reverence for life, to take our place in the great sacred family that is one. Once again, John Bauer, I'm really delighted to have you join me today on the Yoga Hour. Here we are speaking in December of 2022 as we're getting close to Christmas. And Christmas can be a challenging time for many people. Part of that challenge can be our caregiving responsibilities when we may need to provide care for others when we are overwhelmed ourselves. Today, we'll be talking with you about caregiving, how difficult it can be, and how we can find healing and spiritual growth through this caregiving work. What led you to write this book? Well, first, Laura, I'd like to just recognize what you had said about this time of year being a time uh, where folks may feel a lot of, um, a lot of caregiving um, uh, on their plate, and just recognizing that it's often a time where there's outward pressure a lot of noise, pressure to be joyful, pressure to be happy. And so um, and innerly, it may be a very difficult time, a time that may feel uh, uh, troubling, uh, full of grief. And so I just want to recognize um, if you're listening and, and you find yourself in a situation that you're not alone and really wishing may, may, uh, may this conversation here truly be a benefit to you. And so to the question of why I wrote the book, um, it was this time of year. So this Saturday, this December 17th, will be the 35th anniversary of my mother's death. Just mm. 18 years old when she was murdered. And what happened at that time, this was, it was not a time of, of awakening. It was a time of recognizing that I had been asleep. Mm. And really invited me um, to, to start a journey of trying to understand why I was on this planet and what the possibilities were for that. And so it was some just a few years later that I began volunteering for hospice. And that really was the, you know, another way of saying the beginning of writing the book was the beginning of my own journey as an end of life caregiver. Mm -hmm. Decade after that is when I began as a professor um, doing research on end of life care. But really, writing the book was this, I would say, my entire adult life, this inquiry uh, into the meaning of suffering, uh, not abstract thing, but really close to home, and the possibilities that presents for living well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, you brought up so many things. I hope, we, I hope we can dive into a few of them. But one of the things I wanted to start with was you talk about caregiving as spiritual practice. So what do you mean by that? What do you mean when you, when you, you know, talk about uh, caregiving? And by this, I, I want to broaden the conversation, as I, I mentioned to you before we started, 
obviously your, you know, your work has been with hospice, which I also have a lot of experience with hospice as uh, from the physician side, I was a general internist, I'm retired now. Um, But there's all kinds of caregiving, you know, that that people do. And uh, it seemed like it was an opportunity for us to look at this both through the hospice lens, I definitely want to honor, you know, that deeply important work that you've done and, and that you talk about in your book. And also expand it so that we can look at caregiving more generally. So when you talk about caregiving as a spiritual practice, what, what do you mean by that? Well, this really was a, a central part of the inquiry for the book was to, to understand that myself. And so when I began at age 24 in 1993, uh, volunteering for hospice, I didn't know that I was beginning a spiritual practice. Ah. It was years later when I became a meditator. Mm-hmm. I discovered the language and ah, and some insight. This is what I've been doing. This is what I've been doing. And so, what I mean by a spiritual practice is, um, there's a, um, um, it's a um, a practice which um, expands the self. So, what I mean by that is expands the concerns and the capacities of the self. So, it's a place of inquiry, a place where we find. Um, a deeper presence. Mm. So it's not that I'm there's I'm caring. I mean I'm caring for my mom or my brother or as a hospice volunteer, and then after that I'll do some spiritual practice, a meditation or something to sort of recover from that. It's the actual act of caregiving itself. If that's a place where we connect with our vibrancy, where we find we connect with our spirit, where we find meaning and connection. If that's really that place, then it's a right place for really exploring uh, who we are, what, um, um, and really expanding, uh, I can say more about that, our concerns and also our capacities to to live into those concerns. Mm -hmm. One other thing I want to say about that is um, part of that inquiry is really coming to the edge of of our power. So Mm -hmm. any spiritual practice is going to, in my understanding, in my experience, really invites us to see our powerlessness um, and from that place of, of not knowing what to do or how to do, um, can we truly discover what's needed for ourselves, for others in that moment? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you started your work of caregiving in the 1990s with people with AIDS. And at that time, um, I had finished my medical school in 88 and my residency in internal medicine in 1991 and practiced in Los Angeles, in uh, Boston for a few years, and then in uh, the, you know, in the peninsula of the San Francisco Bay Area. All of those areas had a lot of uh, people that had AIDS. And so I have a felt sense have a a recollection of how difficult those early years were and how many people did you know just continue to die the medications have just been transformed in the time since then and so it's much more of a chronic disease now than it was you know at that time but that was part of your early history my early history you know as a physician would you tell us a little bit about that journey of caregiving well um, in some sense, uh, what I really appreciate about uh, about that this has been my journey is the seemingly unlikeliness of it. Mm. That I, uh, you know, I come from a you know working class heritage, uh, um, had no 
wasn't no caregiver experience or identity as a caregiver, anything like this, uh, straight, uh, cisgender male, uh, to then find myself in New Orleans in um, uh, family caring for young gay men who were dying. And so how is it that, that uh, I would find myself in that situation? Well, for, for many years, I, uh, I practiced with Tibetan Buddhist communities, and there's a there is a teaching that I really appreciate, and that is that there are uh, outer, inner, and secret reasons for, mm. for what we do and what we experience. And so on the one hand, I can answer the question this way. The, an outer reason was uh, when I was in college, I took a course um, uh, on uh, death, dying, and bereavement, and that's where I first learned of the word hospice. You know, so there's some sort of seed, some sort of karmic seed being planted. And then here I was in New Orleans, just beginning grad school. I didn't know anyone. I, um, uh, um, you know, what am I going to do when I'm not in the statistics lab and, and reading books? And I was uh, riding my bike one day and I saw a billboard sign. It was like, give blood. I'd never given blood before. And, and uh, so I went and gave blood. And now I do that regularly. Um, and I think that actually was an outer seed of like, oh, I, just this invitation to give, you know, so I think that was, that was part of it. Um, and I think um, I wasn't aware of this at the time, but I think an inner, uh, an inner reason was uh, really to investigate uh, my own grief at losing my mother, a place where um, I wasn't able to be present to her when she was dying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was able to put myself in places where I could be present for others. I could say more about this, but there's a part of the folks I interviewed in my book were folks in, uh, in, in Germany, in Berlin and Freiburg, Germany. And there was many of the volunteers I interviewed that used this word that, that means quite a lot to me, etwas wieder gut machen. To make something right would be the literal translation, but it's this at atonement. And so folks speaking about uh, going uh, to be at the bedside of those who are dying to make something right in their life. And clearly that's what I was doing myself in some way to, to be able to care for my own mom by being at the bedside of others who were dying, whether they were young gay men or uh, older folks with dementia, whoever it might be. And so that's the secret part, I'm still on the process of discovering why I wrote this book and I'm enjoying that journey. Yeah. Oh, I really like that. Inner reasons, outer reasons, and secret reasons, you know, for why we do what we do. That's, that's really beautiful. Um, one of the things I found very touching in your book was your, your the experiences that you related of of um, of interviewing uh, people who are hospice volunteers that were prisoners. So this is I, I hadn't that hadn't occurred to me about you know hospice work. Of course, the prison where the outer uh, United States population is aging, the prison population is aging. Shouldn't have been surprising to me, but it hadn't occurred to me that that you know was going on and. Uh, you know, you talk about, um, you know, these uh, prisoners who are providing, being hospice volunteers for their uh, contemporaries, you know, who are, you know, in hospice, on, in you know, in prison. Um, and especially given your background, you know, with your mom, with your mom's burner, um, it must have been in a way kind of mind boggling, you know, to be working with people who were murderers and, and touching their, their humanity touching their humanity. Um, you wrote in the book, and I was struck by this, so I, I, I wanted to uh, 
read it, you write, fundamentally, this book is an invitation for you to join me as I inquire into the causes and conditions through which caring for others can transform ordinary people like you and me, and how the act of caring itself is central to what it means to be human. I just thought that was so beautiful, how the act of caring itself is central to what it means to be human. Would you say more about that? How do you see the act of caring itself as being central to what it means to be human? Um, I will speak some in a minute about uh, what you mentioned about going into prisons, uh, some of this research. But I want to tell a story about uh, caring for my mother-in-law when she was dying. Um, and I would say when she was living, and she was living very well. Um, her name is Tula. And one day, so for the last six months of her life, about three of those months, I, I lived you know, off and on a about half of the last six months of her life, I was living with her and her husband and caring for her. And one day she was sitting on the futon and she was, um, wasn't able to reach down to tie her shoes. And so I crouched down on the floor in front of her and was tying her shoes. And so I was literally at her feet tying her shoes and she, and she looked down at me and she just said, John, am, am I a burden to you right now? And and this moment was a very profound moment for me because on, on the one hand, that, that uh, mantra, that mindset, that cultural story that um, someone, an adult being in need of care is a burden somehow, an imposition, um, is such a powerful thing. And there she was suffering with that. I was so grateful that there was this honesty in a relationship that she could ask that of me. Right. And it was just um, so out of sync to what I was experiencing it was what a joy. I just told her what a joy for me that I get to tie your shoes right now. And so that I had this opportunity to, um, to connect with my own humanity, that own, my own joy. How often do I get to tie someone's shoes? Not just like, it's so profound. I just mean in that way of like, that I get to tie someone's shoes. Like, what a special thing that I got to do there. Right. Um, yeah, so that's what I mean, that, that this connecting with our humanity, here was this opportunity and this tool of allowing me, you know, not, not trying not to be a burden, but allowing me to, to connect with my own gentleness, to connect with her, with her own spirit in that moment through that really bodily act. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's uh, maybe enough right there for now. Yeah, that's beautiful. Did you want to say any more about the prison thing that I mentioned? Yeah, yeah. So, so when I say that this book is, um, you know, you asked the question about a spiritual practice, how is caregiving a spiritual practice? And so central to that, you know, when I say contemplative caregiving, what I mean is that, that our caregiving is a place for contemplative And that's seeing with all of our senses. Right? And so really seeing what we're experiencing in our body. And so, um, and that's, it really invites us to, to directly experience, to know, what we're, be aware of what we're experiencing. So beyond the dualisms that, that structure so much of our everyday lives. So including, including a dualism that there, there are those worthy of our love, worthy of our care, and there are those who are not. So I can connect very easily with that, with that mindset. 
right? Being a, a, a white man growing up uh, in a racist society, in a sexist society, all, all of the stuff that I've had to work so hard to decolonize my mind. But then especially given my experience of my mother being murdered, to say there is this man named James, this man who, um, and wanting at age 18 and 19, when he was in, in, in the courtroom, wanting to be the one, wanting him to be put to death and to be the one to do that, to really connect with him, doesn't, certainly does not deserve my care. So, um, so that's part of, I didn't know, right? Why did I write this book? I didn't know when I began volunteering for hospice in 1990s that I would one day enter into prisons myself um, and um, interview men who had killed others and who were on their own path of healing and uh, connecting with their own humanity. Yeah, the, um, the story that you tell I think it was in the in the preface, you know, about the, um, you know, the inmate that you were uh, interviewing and um, or I think you had did a presentation or something. Anyway, he was just so struck by your affirmation of his humanity, you know, that we're all hu we're all human and that you um, granted it to him that he was human. He was still human. It's a human who had done something that was terrible. And he was, and he still had humanity. Um, I was very touched by that, by that story. Yeah, and I and I want to I want to say here um, that what I'm speaking of here, this connecting with my own humanity, and there's often, in my experience, that those um, places in myself that I find most hard to accept, most hard to even see, much less accept, are the very things I despise in others. It was so easy to categorize and dismiss others, and so. This spiritual process I'm speaking about here of, of seeing, witnessing, and being able to accompany someone, which I can only do if I can witness in, in a, their own humanity, there's nothing sentimental about this. And so I say, I want to say here that the man who killed my mother is still in prison. And I'm glad that he's still in prison. You know, so this isn't, there is justice. I'm saying this to anyone who might be listening to this who has lost a loved one to murder, that, um, that there is a place for justice. So, uh, and even these men, this man that you're describing that I hugged, that he was serving his time, that, that he, um, that was part of a, of a, I saw as justice. And yet in this moment I was, I was um, presenting um, at a conference in a prison of all places uh, on hospice care. And it just came out, there was a, a conversation about compassionate release um, and, and uh, you know, the, whether it was compassionate to allow someone in the final days of their life to be released from prison, to die with their own family, et cetera. Um, and I just spoke to that saying, hey, I could understand how you know, perhaps members of my own family would, would not want James to be released from prison. And, and I could, make, could make, make sense to me. And yet, in my own, um, I wouldn't see that, that that would in any way support my own grief, my own healing. And, and, um, and so this gentleman, he came to me um, after this this uh, uh, this, this uh, interaction uh, at the end of the day, and he just looked at me and said, "We're all human." And I could I could feel into the question that he was asking with that. And so I just looked, and he was a very short. I'm six foot five. He was a very short guy, <laughs> very short, stocky guy. And I just looked looked and I said, "Yes, we are all human." 
and he just reached out to hug me. So there's this moment of embodiment. So now I'm, I'm uh, doing work as a somatic experiencing trauma therapist. And so the body is so central to compassion. And he held me and I just held him and he began to shake and shake and really shaking into, in, in my understanding, that, that, that inquiry that we're all human. And, and I held him and in, in, I don't know how long it was, could have been minutes until he stopped shaking until that, that, he could renegotiate that that uh, that story that was clearly in his head that he wasn't human was not accepted as as human, and it was a beautiful moment for myself. It was a moment of of affirming simply life, affirming simply humanity. My own there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a very powerful story. So as I was reflecting about caregiving. I was uh, thinking about the four classical paths of yoga and two of them are karma yoga, which as I mentioned in the, in the reflection uh, that I gave early on um, is uh, selfless service. And then bhakti yoga, uh, which is basically uh, the yoga of, um, of, of love, of, of divine love, of seeing the divine in everything and everyone. And these two, karma yoga and bhakti yoga, are two of the four paths of, of classical yoga. And as I think about caregiving, I could see it as a path of either or both, karma yoga, selfless service, and, and bhakti yoga, seeing the divine everywhere and in everything and, and serving that divine. Um, I know yoga is not your uh, tradition. Your tradition is Buddhism, as you've said. Um, and what I've appreciated, what I appreciated about your book is the, the, the focus on, on how transformative caregiving can be. So how has caregiving been transformational in your own life? So I really appreciate this question. I really appreciate the invitation to connect it with, uh, with the traditions of yoga. Um, and so I would say, um, I'll tell us a, a, a story. <laughs> um, Those are the best. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So you're, the question is how is it that you asked is how has it been transformational for me and, and inviting a conversation around the relationship it can have uh, with, with selfless service of karma yoga and, and bhakti yoga. So I'm um, seeing the divine and everything. And so um, the very first gentleman that I cared for, his name was Jerome. And Jerome, uh, I had no training. Like nowadays, when you volunteer for hospice, it's usually like at least 30 hours of training you have. Um, And you're learning about what it means to listen and learning about boundaries and all kind of other self-care, all this other kind of stuff. I had a two-hour conversation with a hospice social worker uh, about the history of the hospice movement and why I wanted to volunteer. And I was set loose in the Crescent City. So I, I showed up at Jerome's. French Quarter apartment and rung the doorbell and he opened the door and there is this man, so quite thin at this point, wearing, you know, just underwear and a, and a you know, like a nightshirt, you know, a t-shirt. He comes to the door and so I'm at the threshold of his door and he says to me, uh, you know, how do we do this? Mm. And I said, I don't know. I've never done it before. Mm. And as I'm saying this, I'm, I'm, it's fascinating. As I'm saying this, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that moment in my life. I'm seeing myself standing there. And then I'm, his response, you know, so my own fear in that moment and his response, which was the most 
obvious response one could make is, well, I don't know either. I've never died before. And it was that reciprocity. That was my invitation into this, this world. So it was actually that very moment that I was passing through this threshold mm. there with him. And so I offer that story to say this when we speak, when you mentioned karma yoga, the selfless service, you know, who is being served here? Mm. <laughs> right. So I write in the book about what I call the reciprocity of care. There can be no caregiving without an invitation. And Jerome invited me in. He invited me not just in to, to care for him. He invited me in to a contemplative journey. So I'm grateful for that. Mm. If I may, I'd like to tell another little snippet yeah. of encounter with Jerome. So Jerome, he had the sweetest spirit. Um, and I love this man so much. It was so such a blessing for me to be with him. And one day, um, um, he wanted to make us lunch. So he made us some just some it was some sliced whole wheat bread with tomato and avocado or uh, sandwiches, I think it was maybe there was some turkey on it. And, and he picks up the sandwich and he just says, Look at that avocado smiling at me. <laughs> so there was this invitation for me to to see the kindness of avocados, right? To really see the divine in everything, right? And so that's really, um, you know, these little snippets here, which are just, um, you know, stories, but they're they're uh, really invitations that Jerome offered me on this journey. Uh, Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great story. I love that. Avocado smiling at me. It's great. As a reminder, I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the Yoga Hour. Today, I'm here with Dr. John Bauer. Bauer is B-A-U-G-H-E-R. Dr. John Bauer, the author of the book we're talking about today, Contemplative Caregiving, Finding Healing, Compassion, and Spiritual Growth Through End-of-Life Care. Over the last 25 years, John has provided emotional, spiritual, and bereavement support to countless dying persons and their family members. You can find out more about him at his website, johnericbauer.com. And again, Bauer is B-A-U-G-H-E-R, johnericbauer.com. We'll be posting the links to his website, as well as the recording of this program on our website, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. Um, so, John, your book uh, focuses on end-of-life care. And I just wanted to ask um, about the opportunity in other situations. I'm thinking of... Um, thinking of there's a lot of care for elders perhaps that we are you know close to or you know friends with or uh, that are family members that is before way before hospice there's child care um, there's friends you know caring for friends who may be you know having a, a difficult time for whatever reason um, do you see this type of caregiving also has uh, have the uh, transformative healing potential that you've been talking about I appreciate the question, and uh, yes, I would. Uh, there are some things about end of life care in 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 my own experience that are that are quite special, right? Where it's sort of we're approaching it as a, a spiritual practice, as as uh, like the conditions are pretty ripe for that, and 
and applicable um, throughout life. Uh, um, if something's good at end of life, it's good at all points in life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I say, I'll tell a little story to begin this part of the conversation where, you know, I was, I was in my, tw I was 24 years old when I started violating for hospice. And so, um, you know, unlikely, and you know, pretty unlikely, like I said earlier, being a male and being a young guy, um, you know, in hospice, you know, hospice is largely founded by, by uh, women, uh, as I write about in the book, the real gratitude to the uh, founding women, the matriarchs of the field, Cicely Saunders and Kubler-Ross and Florence Wall and others. Um, and so here I was, this young guy, and often when I would Later, uh, not not so much when I was volunteering in New Orleans, um, um, I was uh, wasn't so surprising perhaps there that I was a young man caring for other uh, men who were dying. But when uh, a decade later in my young in my thirties, early thirties, when I was volunteering in upstate New York in people's homes, mostly folks with cancer, I would often get the question like, "Why do you do this?" And and sort of behind the question was, "Why do you do this as a man?" You know, it was like, it's such like a wonderful thing that you're doing. And so one day I was, I was um, caring, you know, in, in the home, uh, you know, the, the husband was dying and they had two adopted daughters um, with disabilities. Mm. And, you know, the woman had just, you know, her husband was sleeping and I was visiting with her and she had just spoken really about the, their life journey of, of, adopting these girls one after another and how, you know, it was their whole life's work of caring for them. And, and then she asked me, well, why do you volunteer for as if it was something really special I was doing? And I just said, wow, you know, I could never do what you're doing is what, what then often comes. And, and so it was really an invitation of to take in what you're doing, take in. And so, um, I say that to say that wherever we find our, wherever there's vibrancy for us, right? right? If that's, if that's being a math teacher, right? If that's being a math teacher, if that's being a lawyer, if that's being a doctor, if that's, um, you know, working in a factory, wherever it might be that when I'm working, where there's opportunity to really investigate who I am and to investigate my, my relationship with, with those around me. Mm -hmm. Um, where there's reciprocity of care. Who was really giving to whom here? Mm. Who am coming? What opportunity do I have to to see and with fresh eyes and to become through this act? Mm -hmm. So certainly, as a parent, as a parent, it's uh, I'm a parent. <laughs> I can locate that as a teacher, um, and. Um, the two things I would say about end of life care that I find I found very supportive of approaching it as a spiritual practice is um, is the reciprocity, the invitation in that often when folks are dying, it's not not always, but often as in the case with Jerome, uh, folks are really they're on a journey of discovery themselves, mm -hmm. not wanting to live with a mask anymore of not really. Uh, caring so much about social graces, uh, not caring so much about presenting themselves in a certain way. Um, and so that invitation to be, uh, to witness my own vulnerability, my own humanity as they are theirs, there's that. 
And linked with that is um, embodiment. Mm. All forms of care, you know, they're not in our head. We're, we're caring for, for, you know, for bodies, <laughs> right? For embodied others. And so when someone is dying, the body is, is present there. Often it's present in terms of the limitations, right? One goes from standing to being in the chair to being in the bed. Um, there's also these, these embodiment of, of things that we may take for granted elsewhere of um, the, uh, just the encounter with one's eyes. Yeah, that, that, or yeah, the gentlest of touch. Uh, and so at end of life, it, 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 it may be easier not to take things for granted. Yeah. Enter this relationship knowing that it's going to end at some point. And so that gives kind of a preciousness to it, that impermanence. Mm-hmm. Well, what if we had that mindset always, had that mindset of impermanence, right, of preciousness of this moment? If you're a teacher, to know the end of the year, those students will not be your students, right? To know the preciousness of this moment you have with them, right. for example. As you were speaking, I had a couple of thoughts. You know, one is that um, the practice of uh, self-study is one of the three main practices of of uh, Kriya Yoga: self self uh, discipline, self study, and self surrender. And um, there is such an opportunity, I think, for us to to view ourselves, to see ourselves in these caregiving roles. Such an opportunity to learn, you know. Deeply, and as you said, of course, things get ramped up. You know, when we're in a hospice situation, when we're we know we're you know toward very close to the end of life. Um, I wanted to ask about all of those moments that we have because we're human, where we may feel bad or guilty when we're not at our best with the person that we're caring for. I certainly have had experiences. When I was not at my best, when I was working as a physician, you know, maybe uh, for there was stress going on in my personal life. Maybe I'd had a terrible night's sleep, whatever it was. And I've also spoken to many people who are in a caregiving situation, and and often this is really ramped up when someone is when someone is ill, and particularly in a hospice situation or end of life situation, where under the pressure of you know caring for someone they may have said or done things that they really regret. And I I really appreciated the contemplation that you offered in the book about loving our imperfect care. Forgiveness for ourselves can be such a huge part of our own self-care. So would you say a little bit about that, about loving our own imperfect care even at, at moments like that, like I said, when particularly if you've had a, a bad interaction and then maybe the person dies shortly thereafter, I mean, that's really something to get through. First, I want to thank you for bringing attention to this contemplation of the book. So the, the, the book is divided into 10 chapters and each has a, a contemplative exercise to really invite connection between what's being offered in that chapter and integration with one's own life as a, as however one is caregiving at the time. So really wanting the book to be of use to folks. So hope that is um, to to listeners. So in this case, you know, what I've, um, I want to connect it with uh, what's in social psychology and experimental psychology, there's something called a fundamental attribution error. And that is where, um, let's say someone cuts us off in traffic, 
you know, and uh, I, what a jerk. What a, what a jerk. They just cut me off, you know, and uh, and so essentializing it. This is about them, you know, their essence. They're a bad person. You know, they're inconsiderate. Um, whereas the times when I might cut someone off in traffic, you know, I can, I can I'm sort of I can sort of see, oh, God, I'm running late for work or I got to get, you know, don't want to miss that appointment, whatever, and can sort of see there's a there's a context. Yes. There are reasons. It's not that I'm a jerk or it's just that there's a reasons for, for my, you know, perhaps unkind, you know, not so thoughtful behavior. Um, and so, in other words, this is, you know, based on experimental research that points out that we humans, you know, sort of have this self-centered interpretation, perception, right? more grace for ourselves than for others. In my experience i i sort of sense that there is some some a place where this breaks down that is when we're when we're caregivers particularly perhaps when we're caring for family members mm. where we can be the harshest critics of ourselves we can sort of see or forget that there's a context even though we know it to be true but for, and just sort of say that i've got a love i have that we can be like driven to have this perfect love this got to show up. And, and a lot of times it might be that I don't want to have any regrets when they die. Mm -hmm. That's all that was driving it there. So, so, so the contemplation basically is it's an invitation. I'll sort of leave out the specifics here, but it's just an invitation to, to witness um, just what it is that our behavior, what we're doing. You know, it may be uh, the thing we said that we thought wasn't so helpful, you know, that really dad when I said that um, and then really connecting with one part of the contemplation really connecting with the judgments we might have of that right well, how could I say why could I say that to my dad you know what a, and really connecting with that that sense of shame and guilt which really can hold us back in our in, in our uh, often connected with trauma can hold us back from our expansion from our from our becoming so really witnessing those those uh, uh, those shameful thoughts guilty thoughts and then also having a part of the contemplation where we invite a compassionate witness of that to sort of see a broader context. Mm -hmm. What is it that I'm going through right now? You know? Yeah. How am I suffering in this in this moment where I'm sure I'm as best I can? Mm -hmm. A lack of sleep, um, or maybe maybe your dad that you're caring for um, hit you as a child, abused you as a child, or just wasn't always so nice to you, or maybe. He is still in that moment speaking to you in a tone of voice, just projecting anger at you when you're just showing up to resisting receiving your love. Mm -hmm. yeah, so this this uh, perfect intention, we can have this perfect intention and it need not be um, land perfectly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great, that's such a great message. You write in the book um, about it's obviously big theme of the book, compassion, and how the practice of compassion is an important component of Buddhism. And it also shows up in the yoga world, the yoga philosophy, ahimsa, or harmlessness is a foundational practice. Ahimsa is a Sanskrit term which can be interpreted as several different things, harmlessness, nonviolence, this is Gandhi's, you know, main, main practice. So a lot of people are associated with that, with that word nonviolence, but also kindness and compassion. And you write in the book that compassion is an inside job and also an outside job. Would you, would you say more about that? 
um, of course, and I appreciate your follow-up because this this question actually relates really directly to to the what we were just speaking about 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 loving our imperfect care. Um, you know, in some sense, you know, to say compassion is an inside job. There's a recognition that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, this is my 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 view is that there's always an opportunity to to care. There's always an opportunity to care. I mean, in other words. Um, you know, in the book, I'm, I speak about five components of compassion, and the first one, well, first one of them being intention. Yeah. Right. So our compassion intention. So, um, so in this moment, even if someone is resisting our care, right? Let's say that someone, no matter what I do, they're pushing me away. Maybe someone won't receive your hug, right? You know, <laughs> and how painful that can be. Or, you know, they don't want to be a burden, turning you away. Um, sometimes when I volunteer for hospice, um, um, I would go into someone's room and they don't want me there. Mm -hmm. You know, this one time I went in and this gentleman just like, you know, pointed to the door, you know. So even in that moment where my care is denied, I can still connect with my compassionate intention. Okay. And so in that case, and even in honor of the wish of, of, of leaving. Right, but connect with my compassion intention. And so, um, so I believe that, that every moment offers us, right, this, this, that's this inside job, but can I see the opportunity here? Can I have eyes to see the opportunity? And also though, that circumstances can, can make things possible, more possible. So as a hospice volunteer, when I, when I would, um, um, I wouldn't have been able to care for Jerome or any of these other folks if there hadn't been this thing called hospice that, that these founding mothers had created that simple folks like I could show up in and where there was this immediate trust that because I came from hospice, you would let me in your home. So that's an example of an outer and outside job. There's this outer circumstance where I would be let in, you know, so, so there's a kind of privilege that comes with that. You know, I, I um, you know, um, in a racist society, speaking of white privilege, the kind of privilege that things I have available to myself that I don't might not see. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by there's this outward, there's goodness can flourish in my life because there's privilege there. So how do the circumstances my life invite me, give me opportunity to connect with my humanity? This ties directly back to, to your question about, about the prison. Right. About the prison where, um, I spoke with a warden of a, of a, of this, of this prison where I was doing this research and, and, uh, and he recognized that this hospice program there was, even though it was not set up to be a, in a rehabilitation, you know, it wasn't a rehabilitation program, like a drug rehab program or education or something like that, a career skills training. It was set up to meet a need, mm -hmm. a need for care um, in the prison. And yet what was happening is here was these these men who were caring. This was the only opportunity they had in that prison right. to connect with their their human need to, to care for someone else. And it may have been their only opportunity in their entire lives. Wow. Wow. And so that's what I mean. It's this 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 outside job is that here's a context that allows me to to connect with my own humanity, connect with my need. Mm -hmm. Care. And so, 
you know, I think about my, I write some in the book about this, about my dad, where, you know, he grew up in a generation where he didn't have the opportunity, you know, as a, as a, he was a steel worker um, and, and, uh, you know, was committed in that way, was, a, you know, a breadwinner, um, but did not, uh, didn't have the opportunities I have to, to connect with the life of the mind, the life of the heart. Right. Who might my father have been? You know, had he had the opportunity to, to care for folks at the end of life as I've had. You know, so that's what I mean by this, this outside job. So sort of recognizing um, and that can support us likewise in being um, loving our imperfect care. You know, when um, I, I did some work as a, as a nursing assistant, um, which is very different. It could be caring for the same patients as a volunteer, but I'm under time pressure. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> right and so witnessing and having compassion for my fellow cnas this was a few years ago i was thinking about becoming a nurse so i thought i would give this a try and witnessing my fellow cnas who were often really struggling to be present to the suffering of others and the the, the massive time pressure that, that, right. that nursing assistants are under that's a good example and so can i have compassion for my job doesn't allow me to 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 to, to care as i would like to Right. Yeah, and sort of offer that up. Yeah. I've <laughs> been able to. Yeah. Well, unbelievably, we've come to the end of our time together. And as we uh, as we close the conversation, I wanted to give you a chance to share some words of encouragement or inspiration with our listeners. What would you like to share? Well, um, I think I'll I'll actually share how the how uh, the book ends, if I may. So uh, this won't be a spoiler. Hopefully, it'll be a teaser. <laughs> and so this is um, these are words from um, you know, Cicely Saunders was a, a, a really a, a real inspiration for me. A brilliant um, Anglican um, uh, social work social worker nurse turned physician um, who really. Uh, combined, really wanted to integrate the best of, of uh, medical care with a spiritual tradition, which for her was Christianity. Um, and um, these words, which I offer, um, drawn from her as a prayer. So for anyone who uh, may be listening, who is caring for a loved one, or about to embark on such a journey, or perhaps you've just lost a loved one and are grieving, um, May we prepare ourselves with a readiness to live with questions, with no rigid answers, and with an overall confidence that there is meaning and an answer, even if it is not yet revealed. And I'll bring that back then, come full circle to the beginning of the conversation of why I wrote the book, right? And so really, so this sort of secret reason, right? These secret reasons, so just really encourage anyone out there who is who is caring and really struggling with that um, that you can rely on your good intentions to trust that there um, that when we work when we when we work with a discipline this practice of character when we work with a with it whatever our contemplative practice might be that we can be ripened by it and discover joys that we would never have known were possible so beautiful so beautiful thank you very much for that so for listeners 
You've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Dr. John Bauer, B-A-U-G-H-E-R, caregiver, teacher, and author of the book we've been discussing today, Contemplative Caregiving, Finding Healing, Compassion, and Spiritual Growth Through End-of-Life Care. You can find out more about John Bauer at his website, johnericbauer.com. A link to his website and a recording of this program will be posted on our website at theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, John Bauer, for joining me today on the show. It's so wonderful to be with you, Laurel. And again, thank you to the Yoga Hour and to the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment for this invitation. And thank you to uh, all those who have listened. May it be a benefit. For listeners, I hope you will join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, which include daily online meditation in the morning from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. in the afternoon, 4 to 4.30 p.m., and on Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m. All those times are Pacific time. We also offer a Sunday satsang at 10 a.m. each week. Satsang is a Sanskrit word meaning gathering of truth seekers. All these times, again, are Pacific time. You can join us and Yogacharya O'Brien at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment for these upcoming programs. Friday, December 23rd, there's an online worldwide meditation for the Holy Days. And there's an upcoming New Year's retreat, Kriya Yoga New Year's retreat, coming Thursday, December 29th through January 1st. You can... Find out more about these uh, events and other classes at csecenter.org. We will be off for a couple of weeks for the holidays. We'll be back at the beginning of January. In the meantime, you can find a list of our top programs from the Yoga Hour for 2022 on our website. These are particularly good episodes of the show from the past year that have been identified by our team. Happy holidays to everyone and happy listening. Join us on the Yoga Hour in January 2023 when I will be talking with Dr. Stacy Graham. We will be discussing yoga as resistance, how the ancient teachings of yoga can be a tool that translate our inner experience into an outer form of social justice and change. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Nikki Coronado, and Christine Soap. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you need. Bye now. Bye.